Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Crazy Money. I am your host, Paul Ollinger, and you are you. And my guest this week is Hugh Hendry. You're going to love this guy. He's known as a bit of a wild man from the investment world. He grew up working class in Glasgow, Scotland, and eventually became the manager of the hedge fund Eclectica Asset Management, where he earned a reputation as a contrarian in 2008, when his fund returned over 30% while the rest of the world was melting down. Today, he develops property in St. Bart's, where he lives full time, and we discuss what led him to do that. By the way, we spoke at the Stansbury Research Conference in Boston a couple of weeks ago, where I also got to meet in person former Crazy Money guests Jared Dillian and Vitaly Katzen-Nelson. Great to meet you guys and a whole bunch of other people. Thank you to the Stansbury team for having me. That was a lot of fun to speak at that event. And of course, I got to meet Hugh. And Hugh, this guy is incredible. I know you guys are going to love hearing what he has to say because he wears his heart on his sleeve, both on stage at the event and in this conversation. Hugh speaks very clearly and candidly about how anxiety, youthful anxiety, and his profound need to be loved led him into the investment world and how it informs his strategies today. He shares anecdotes of Scottish thrift that will make you laugh, and he shares insights into how it feels to lose millions of other people's dollars when you make the wrong bet on an IPO. He eventually closed his hedge fund, and he describes that like feeling as if you died in mortal combat, and he gets into why he chose to live in St. Bart's and how that is an expression of who he is. Lastly, we discuss why, as an investor, we have to be mindful of the profound wrongness of today. And after the last 12 months in the markets, folks, I know we're all sitting there scratching our heads going like, how are we wrong right now? How are we going to know we were wrong 12 months from today? Well, ain't that part of the adventure, folks? Anyway, please enjoy this conversation with Hugh Hendry. Hugh Hendry, welcome to Crazy Money. Let's get crazy. It's crazy and great to meet you. Thanks for doing this. Hi, I'm super stoked. So I've I've only recently become aware of you, but the more I learn, the more fascinated I am. You grew up working class in Glasgow. What did you think about money? What was your relationship with money when you were a kid? I, 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 I believe it's quite similar to today. I, I, I'm rather detached. Uh, I'm very fortunate today right. that I can say that I'm detached. You know, uh, what is my... What is the balance of my bank account? I have no idea. I just know that um, it, they tend to, to release funds. Yeah. You weren't conscious of money as a kid? You, you didn't think about, did you think about class? Did you think about who the rich people were? What was rich to you when you were a 12-year-old? Who did you think of, oh, that guy or that woman is spectacularly wealthy? I, again, I, do you, think, you know, my vistas were gray. You know, Scotland has this low sky that comes in off, rolls in off the Atlantic, um, and I, I, I was, I was miserable. I, I, I was really, I'm fascinated by that period in time because I sacrificed. I had a maturity. I was willing to sacrifice my adolescence to education because I reasoned that the only past I rejected where I was from. This is early eighties. Yeah, I mean, what's this is, going this on? Is, factories shutting down, things like that. This is early Thatcher. Well, I know, if, I know, I know, I, yeah, I, if we I, want to do economic, economics, if you will, the most profound thing, 1980, was the the new Thatcher government mm -hmm. with an eye on a the the a revolution of the political economy, mm -hmm. and coming in and saying, "Why don't I grant you the ability to buy the social housing stock?" Mm. My parents bought their house. So we, we fled a very, very dangerous, violent, 
failed housing project. And we were then shipped out to version 2.0, okay, which was, which was nice. My parents then were given the opportunity to purchase the house. And you have to remember, they had never conceived that that would be possible. A mortgage? I mean, get out of here. Like, right. you know, we're talking 7,000 sterling, you know, mm-hmm. which actually probably the, the cross rate with the dollar would be similar to, to what it is today. So 7,000 bucks, yep. give or take, you know. And I want to say that I don't know why, but my parents, they had, they were anxious folk. Mm-hmm. And in what way? They just worried about silly things, you know, and they were obsessed by home improvement. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't know. They, there's this, thing called Artex, which I don't think exists in America, but it's like uh, creating the surface of ice cream on, on the in, indoor ceilings. Yeah. And my goodness, did we have to have that, that Artex mm-hmm. drove, drove me crazy. However, the purchase or the securing of the mortgage drove that anxiety into hyperdrive, right. okay, overdrive. And as a child, you're, you, you're a sponge and you take it on board. Right. I believe there was a, an early parent teacher, uh, rendezvous. And the te- I, I hope the teacher was saying, you know, very pleasant, uh, in, industrious child, but heavens for one so young, he worries so much. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I like to think that I went on, um, to monetize that, if you're going to worry about something, right, right. or worry about just buying a yard of the dollar versus on a yard, you know, uh, being a, uh, a billion dollars, worry about that. I mean, I find myself in St. Paul's. I worry about the color of the damn, the, the swimming pool towels. Right. You're yeah. blue, stripey. I'm like, listen to yourself, really? Yeah. So, you know, and I, I would say to people that I was, the analogy I made was I felt like a paranoid schizophrenic, yeah. that I heard voices in my head that led me to take decisions, to put their money in danger. And then I was profoundly concerned about the consequences of that. So your reaction to parents who were stressed out was to study, and was that to prepare yourself for a life of independence, financial independence? That resonates with me because I'm a child, I'm one of six kids who grew up in a house run by uh, devout Catholics who were Depression-era parents. And it was about guilt and it was about frugality and all of that. And we had everything we needed, but there, I internalized this stress around money as if, you know, someday I just have to outwork that stress. And by the way, you can't do it. <laughs> no, don't, don't tell me the ending <laughs> because I, I'm, you know, I ended up in St. Bart's, um, semi permanently from 2015 with my family as a little experiment, like to escape the tiger mom of like, you know, the elite London private education. Mm. Um, and t- the time came where we were to return and I couldn't. And the thing was, I felt like I owed the 10 year old kid. I was like, it's your turn now. Right. And there's an elixir of, of joy that I find just in this beautiful, you know, sun drenched, beautiful uh, location. But like, it, 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 you're right. It doesn't matter where you are. It's, it's not necessarily the, the recipe to success. What, what type are you? You must have had, you know, so I am, and this really cracks me up. I've come to learn that I am an, an ambivalent attached type. Right. An ambivalent attached type. What does that mean? It means I'm really messed up. It mean, I mean, so again, one of my other stock and trade things was I'm really into channeling irony and paradox. Right. Okay. So attached. I am desperate to be loved. 
desperate. You know, you see me on stage, and I give, yeah. I give everything. You sure. Know? Yeah. As people might question, I should get my hair cut. I should like dress. Oh my like God! I kill for your hair. Come on, what are you talking about? <laughs> and 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 you know, so it goes back to that housing project. My, my mother was on, you know, diazepam. Mm. You know, because it was my father. That's what they were stealing and train spotting. I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, but my father was a truck driver and he had to, he was away really early yeah. and we were we were really being rejected by the community and so his mission was to, that my mother was to take my brother and I out of the community each day and then come back later on creating detachment and then my mother being a little bit not wiped out I mean I don't wish to suggest that but mm -hmm. so I'm desperate to be attached I kept this I I went on on my first date and you know I've been together for 35 years until until June, unfortunately. But, you know, that type. And why am I no longer together with my wonderful, I say ex-wife, and it's just so painful. But uh, because of the ambivalence. Yeah. That, so regardless of how much I want it, I kind of need me time. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah. like, of all the damn types, why did I have to have that? When you started, you said you sacrificed your adolescence mm. to prepare for this future. Mm. What were you reading that was turning you on that was sort of, pointing you in, in the direction that you ended up going? I was, <laughs> well, first of all, I was listening to Simple Minds. Yeah, um, right. Um, simple, and yeah, um, and now I, sp I speak a little bit to Jim Carroll, which is a bit of a, a bit of a thrill. Um, and that was, that was people from my upbringing, if you will, who were out there and like challenging the world, challenging mm -hmm. the perimeter, you know, the frontier fences that kept you caged in yeah. and were like exploding with um, creativity. I'd love to tell you that, you know, for me, it was when I heard this Bowie song or whatever. And I was like, I'm going to be the front man of this band and we're going to rock. We're going to change the, the face of rock music. Sadly, I have to say it was market based accounting research. <laughs> I'm not proud to say that, but at least I'm being transparent. Don't you forget about me or generally account accepted accounting principles. But so I was at university and I did an honors year, which is the fourth year. And, and I was like, again, another thing I have to say, I was studying accountancy and economics because a kid whose father's a truck driver, you're, you're kind of, you're reaching to be a lawyer or an accountant. Right. That's, that's, that's as far as you can see. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. And then in my fourth year, we had this data stream terminal, which is a, you know, it's the prehistoric version of uh, Reuters or, of course, Bloomberg. But it, it was the chart depiction of stock prices. And you were then to test hypothesis. And it became Shakespearean the Tempest. You had a null hypothesis, which was this accounting policy would not change cash flow and therefore should have no bearing on the valuation the stock price shouldn't register and you would set it all up and you would sit there and you would watch and the tempest would reveal itself mm -hmm. and i was captivated by that that was my that was my rock canyon what did it do for you why did it light a fire in you you know so my detachment as an adolescent i had no vices i didn't i'm literally i didn't drink i didn't smoke I mean, drugs, there weren't any drugs back then, you know. I didn't go to parties. I didn't have a girlfriend. I found a few drugs. <laughs> Maybe that in Glasgow. I don't know what's going on. It came a bit later, you know. Yeah, you know, nothing, nada. Yeah. Study, study, study. Yeah. Uh huh. Did you want to put it to the man? Did you feel like you wanted to show the Etonian crew that you could do it? Like, was there any bit of that? That came later. So, um, yeah, I was a smart kid and I received a financial sponsorship to sign up with an accountancy group mm -hmm. at the end of my studies. And six months before then, 
I was very much modeling my appearance on Mickey Rourke in the wonderful movie Angel Heart. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I had this kind of brown New Orleans, suit. Yeah. yeah, oh my God. <laughs> Lisa Bonet and all that. And you know, watch it now. Like, movies don't age because of the technology change. It is still, you know, what does Lisa Bonet say? It's, it's always the badass that makes a girl's heart beat faster. Yeah. There's no greater wisdom than that. But um, so you wanted to be that guy? You wanted oh, to be the rock star? Oh my God! I wanted to be Mickey Rourke so bad, and uh, and I had a. So I had this green, this is how Mickey Rourke when I say green woolen cardigan. That was something I was also big. I, the one vice I tell you I had, um, heaven forgive my spiraling mind, but the one vice I had, which be went on to shape part of my life is I had a fascination for French culture because I because I wasn't drinking and whatever I go to the Glasgow Art Theatre and at the time there were these there was this incredible creative outpouring from French cinema Betty Blue Troncet Vergo Cinq Degrés Dans Le Matin I mean this begins with full on bonking right I mean really there's no stimulation it's really happening and I'm like eating popcorn going, oh my god and then the guy you know stands up and he pours himself coffee into a bowl mm-hmm. and has a cigarette and i thought they drink coffee in bowls and they have real sex where do i sign up and right. and i you know i'm very happy to say that here i am and i now live i speak french i don't maybe i'll do the bonking i drink coffee from a bowl yeah. and my life feels like tick i achieved that but to the point the, the more important point not drinking and, and being somewhat Therefore, kind of not having that lubrication, mm-hmm. um, I saw that I was a watcher. I was fascinated by the drama. Right? I recorded everything. And so it, it appealed when I was watching the Tempest appear and these price patterns and these hypotheses. It very much lent into my, 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 social, my, my depraved social kind of activities. Mm. And how does that translate into your early career? Like, Oh, yeah, because we stick it to the man. So I get a job. Serendipity has, without a doubt, doubt co-joined itself to my determination to move, to, to move, to move, to move, to move on. And I, the serendipity was there was this extremely good pension manager based in Edinburgh. And they always recruited four kids each year. And they used the filter of the education system. And they went to the top and they mm-hmm. took kids from... Cambridge and Oxford. I, I, I just don't have an issue with that. However, they were seeking to expand into the United States and they, yeah, it was difficult. And so they appointed consultants and a consultant, you know, if the, if there ain't a solution, invent something, just say something. So they said, we're worried about the, the lack of gene diversity in your recruitment policy. We, we worry that you're kind of sitting on uh, deck chairs eating cucumber uh, sandwiches mm-hmm. and watching the cricket, which actually time, time to time was actually quite true. Um, and so they said, you know, recruit locally. And my little application sales in. Mm-hmm. And I get the job. And I get the job because I'm local and I'm brimming. You know, I'm like, you know, I have a vibration. I vibrate differently, mm-hmm. you know. And that was noted. But then it, I was very much a, you know, it was, uh, what do we call it? Um, you know, the, the Victorian movie. I was a social experiment. I was the, 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 the young... Eliza Doolittle. Yeah, I was Eliza Doolittle. <laughs> Uh, except in, in that context, which will mean nothing to your audience, but I was Rab C. Nesbitt. Mm. Uh, and there was a popular character portrayal on the British Broadcasting Company of this you know, alcoholic Glaswegian. Yeah. Um, and no one could understand what he said. Mm-hmm. And they literally, they would refer to me as Rab C. Nesbitt. <laughs> and then making matters worse, uh, there was a syntax error uh, coming from my Glaswegian accent. 
with the word, which manifests itself with the word, I'm going to say properly, definitely. Mm-hmm. Okay. But back then, I would pronounce that def- <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I, I was introducing additional syllables. Right, yeah. And when I think about that now, uh, but the, seriously, it was eight years of profound pain and agony. I failed for eight years. What do you, uh, define failure in that, in that context? If they had been less commercially successful, they would have fired me mm. as it was. Why didn't they fire you? Be- because they were above that sort of thing. They were mm. gentlemen. These, these guys wore the suits of their dead fathers. It was oh, that wow. kind of wow. genealogy, right? And um, they just hoped that God, I would damn, go Think away. about that as a metaphor, by the way. Just mm. walking around in the suit of your dead father. The senior partner at the time was like 6'6", six, six, and his father clearly did not have his stature. <laughs> but he wore his, it with trousers. Up. I, I tell you a great story because infamous story, the two of the partners, they go to, I think, Dallas, um, and they're pitching uh, for the brief. And it's hot. This doesn't rhyme true because, heavens, it's hot. Can we take our, our, our jackets off? I mean, U.S. offices are terribly cold, but you know, let's, let's run with it. Can we take our jackets off? And there was a great thing where you wore out the pat, the elbow patches, yeah. and that meant that you were industrious. It meant that you were you, you weren't one of those showy types. Yeah. But the Texans went. I'm guessing from where you where you guys come from, that's a kind of sign of status. But around here, <laughs> you look like bums. I love that story. That's funny. So you do this for a while. When do you get a chance to put your worldview into practice as an investor? Yeah. Um. So. I mean, I, I recall I was in tears and I was just saying to the, I was submitting my resignation yeah. and I had finally, no one would take me because I, I worked in this very rarefied, I mean, I worked for the best asset manager in the United Kingdom, but they were eclectic, this word that's followed me. And, and we were mysterious in our workings and very, very different. And therefore it was very hard. Everyone wanted specialism and I was generalist. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I got a job at Credit Suisse and I went from, you know, like the Formula One pits. I was working for the Red Bull team. I was num- I was maybe the, the seventh best driver, but in the number one team. And suddenly I was the, the number one driver in the team that was intellectually bankrupt and couldn't <laughs> like get past the finishing line. Right. Um, but serendipity in the, that capacity, I had to step in for my boss. And I had to go and take, take notes from a hedge fund manager. Mm-hmm. And this was uh, 1998. And the world, the Asian economies were having a crisis and Russia was set to have this major default. And I could see it all, but I was furious. Like, really? My, this is a new low in my life. Now I'm a scribbler for other managers. How did I get here? Um, and yet it changed my life because um, I met with Chris Benodi, mm-hmm. um, who was literally the first uh, European hedge fund manager who set up in, I want to say, 1993. And we just got on immediately. And it was just the two of us. It was like, you know, McCartney and Lennon. And we were finishing sentences. And at the end, he said, come, come for dinner. And again, he was another, you know, uh, from a different strata of, uh, you know, of, of, um, of life. And I recall, like, with my Scottish heritage, if someone invites you for dinner, you bring some wine. And mm-hmm. I went to the gross... And worn-out elbow patches. 
Oh, well, only if you're an aristocrat. Yeah, you know, right. I certainly was an aristocrat. So I, I, you know, like back then, you know, 15 sterling pounds was kind of rich for some red wine. Sure. And, you know, it's in this plastic bag. And he's like, oh, great. And he gives it to the Philippine. <laughs> oh, he's like, you, t- you take that. You take that poison. Um, but at the end of the evening, he said, you're one of us. You're, you're a pirate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Come, come and let's misbehave. How did Crispin, what had he, what, what class of assets was he investing in at the, that, that got him to that point? Um, so he'd come from an equity background, but he was very much this global macro. Now, global macro though, requires explanation. Back then, it was like being uh, anointed 007. It was mm. a James Bond. It was a license to thrill. Mm-hmm. It was the loosest uh, mandate that you could, you could do literally anything just don't lose the damn money right okay um, and you had to be very certain of the talent pool before you would give such discretion to managers so you were accorded a great confidence on the part of investors and he, his biggest investor was soros and then he had this he, he, soros was one of his limited partners yeah, yeah. oh okay um and 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 def- defined the up and the down right. but crispin had it this was back with it's like the U2's Actung baby, but it, it goes before it. it's Berlin with the Berlin. walls yeah, coming down, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And he's owning Ericsson and Nokia. And these are names now that people probably don't even know, but you know, Nokia was the largest Golden pilot. It was the largest company in the world yeah, by market yeah, capitalization. Yeah. But Chris rationalized like, why do I own this? And it had this a very high price earnings ratio, a growth stock. And he said, really, this is duration. And this is an interest rate bet. And we're going to see the powers of globalization unleashed with these walls coming down and this expansion in, in the global labor supply. So how can I do this differently? And he went, and he decided upon buying what's called the British War Loan. It was issued a hundred years ago to, to fund one of these reckless, stupid adventures overseas, but it was an undated console. It was the, the, it was like the co- Again, it was like licking the honey from the razor's edge. You just couldn't get higher octane interest rate. But it coincided with, I was speaking today and I asked the audience, tell me when the Fed last got it right. But we could go back to Greenspan in 1994 and he preemptively raised interest rates and that caused great consternation. Orange County went bankrupt mm-hmm. and it left it, it, it left great havoc. And Crispin was one of the, Crispin taught me to be extravagant in life mm. and how we engage with life, not how we spend life. Um, and, and he bought like 15% of the, go- I mean, no one buys 15% of a damn government bond issue. Mm. Like no one owns 50, like not one single manager goes and buys 15% of the treasury bond. He did and he got, he got s- screwed. So how did you brought your detachment and your pirates, your pirates mindset to the team? When did you start seeing the positive results of that mindset yeah. that that made you who you became. Well, the great thing was he he, he did limited due diligence, which is to say, <laughs> he phoned the other aristocrats. My wife did limited due diligence <laughs> to her, you know, to her credit. It's gone okay so far. Well, did, please, can we not talk about wife? Oh yes, just okay, sorry, but... The um, the you know, so he called the other aristocrats in Edinburgh, and they're like, mind your eye, like that kid. A troublemaker, <laughs> troublemaker, and to his great credit, went. Thank you. That's what I wanted to hear. And if you, th- if you, you know, if you deep fascination, I'm sure you do for for history and all these military adventures and misadventures that these great military leaders are undone typically at the end because they're surrounded by sycophants, and rather than challenging, 
they're agreeing mm. and and there lies you know there lies a path of disarray and and so crispin wanted someone powerful or naive to take him on and when it came to the subject matter of uh, economics i that i had that superpower and and we we had ferocious ferocious arguments and that was the power uh, there was a time actually when when i finally got my hedge fund uh, my biggest, I remember, my biggest short was his biggest long. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And on the same book or? In the same In the same firm. office, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was like, well, I'm countering you. Okay. And the thing that really upset me, because he, trans, to your point, he transformed me from mediocrity into this powerful person that could just, there were times when I got glimpses of what was to pass. Mm. Very powerful that. And, and he taught me curiosity to, to misbehave mm. it's it's better that you teach your kids to misbehave i had this conversation again with you know, one of these it, it, very expensive private schools and the, the girls would wear these straw boat beautiful straw boat hats um, they were in this georgian building it had 15 steps the descent into heaven uh, and on the first morning they had the girls were supposed to one at a time walk up those stairs and and curtsy and you know and then right. enter and she went down on the first morning and she whispered into the first girl and said, I'll race you to the top. Mm-hmm. And they ran. And she was teaching them to break again, break the chains of conformity, which is yeah. better you teach them or you guide them than they learn themselves because sure. they can get a little bit you know, funky. Right. Um, and Crispin was like, let's misbehave. Um, you know, misbehave, financial misadventures, you know, to, to just again find out the razor's edge of where the future rests. And so, um, it, he, he actually had a, a, a skill set. Um, when I said paranoid schizophrenia and I refer to, to voices, we looked at charts. Now in Edinburgh, there was profound intellectual disdain that the, the past can't capture any import for where we have to be in the future, which is, was hip, uh, hypocrisy because they spent all their time reading narratives about the past. To see the future. Just not data. Just not, not data. And you know, like a, you know, like if you're, uh, heavens forbid you find yourself in hospital the first thing the doctor looks at is your job right. you know so that's a bit of that uh, and that transformed me that transformed me and so being the father conceiving of the rules somehow it 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 it, it meant to him that he could disobey the rules mm. that somehow they weren't that he was greater than the rules but for me they were so transformative that i became the chief disciple of the rules and so that's when we would have these mm. uh these debates i mean yeah Tell me about a couple of the early bets you made that either paid off or didn't pay off. Mm. Well, the uh, the great there's a, a great chapter heading which is the conceit and the arrogance um, of a well thought of a well argued idea, um, and I I had all of that when I was in Edinburgh, and I needed a, a holy Mary pass to try and you know <laughs> get me out of the hole, right. and. I was in my naivete, um, I stumbled across the IPO, the, the uh, Reader's Digest was coming to the market. Oh, is that right? What year is it? This is, I don't know, 1996, maybe? So it went from a family private entity and they had a, a public offer. Yeah. And I thought about it in the folklore of Coca-Cola and Disney that these are... So in the UK, people, um, they think of it as British. 
Well, no, the opposite. They think of it as a slice of Americana. And they, digest it. Yeah, and the Germans would. It's, it's just. I mean, obviously they would. Obviously they would. And with the uh, with globalization, this was a piece of Americana that was going to be uh, leapt upon and devoured and consumed better and with the discipline of markets. But more than that, you know, it's a digest of last week's news. Once it's released, the half life of its value is in minutes. Right. So. Effectively, your your stock, your input costs were zero, mm-hmm. and you would charge on, on top of that. So the margin should be enormous. And I, I just thought Warren Buffett was going to buy Reader's Digest. And so I bought a lot on behalf of the Edinburgh institution, and it went down. Mm-hmm. And I bought more. <laughs> and I checked. Again, I checked. I checked. I was like the Taliban. I, I read descriptions. Yes, it's a deep mode. It's this, it's that. We buy more. And it was disastrous. And I was, you know, I got the, the tap on the shoulder and the partner sold it eventually. And it was time to, it was time to go. Now, at the, just shortly afterwards, I had a, a female contemporary. What did, hang on a second. What did it feel like? What did you, when you woke up every morning and your position is going into the toilet, do you make it to, are your teeth brushed before you're thinking about it? I question whether there is symmetry between joy and anguish. Mm. I want to say that the ja- the anguish that I felt foolishly overwhelms those brief moments of joy because you're meant to get it right. Mm. You know that's why you charge the big bucks. Mm-hmm. But the anguish is is yeah. I said I said on I I got interviewed on Bloomberg the day that I announced the end of the fund, mm-hmm. and I said you know what I died in Mortal Kombat. Mm. That's how it felt. <laughs> you know, the, the brain has no windows. Right. It is no idea if it's sunny or if we're in Vietnam or yeah, yeah. God forbid, whatever else. Right? But and it's relying on your subconscious. And my subconscious was like, there, there were so many damn days because being this macro eclectic, you know, different drummer beat, um, I was always different from everyone else. And by and large, markets, as we know, just gone up. So there were days where I was like, oh, I, I'm grieving. I'm dead. I'm finished. It's over. And you're drowning in all that toxicity of what the, the body provides. So again, I needed St. Bart's. I yeah. needed natural wonder, soft healing. I want to get to St. Bart's, but before we do, we have to talk about 2008. Yeah, 2000. The, so I, what, what, what insight did you have that nobody else or that very few other people had during that period, which you know was made famous by the big short? I mean, the, the contrarian view of the market was made famous, not your bet necessarily. Uh, well, I, in I, very general term. Yeah. So <clears throat> contrarian, I, I get called contrarian, but I'm a trend follower. So I'm a contrarian trend follower, which is oxymoronic. Mm. Now, and I always, I, I'm saying ox, I'm adding oxy, not moronic, <laughs> oxymoronic, right? which is these right. two counterposed um, ideas. Now, you say contrarian, and I want to push back on that to my trend following. Treasuries were. U.S. government bond prices were trending positively. Mm-hmm. And again, to my paradox and irony, I conceived of, it, of the notion that if you thought the future was one of inflation, because there was all this debate about the gold price, and, and I had made 50% my first calendar year as this hedge fund manager, and, and it came from the, the reemergence of gold back into our financial inver- in, uh, culture. Um, and then like five years later, I want to, four years later, Citigroup published this $3,000 price target. And Citigroup never talked about gold. And then 3000 was, I mean, I'm fruity. And 3, I mean, even I wasn't talking about 3000 mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, 
let's examine it. Why do they feel emboldened to say that? And then actually let's solve, how do we get to 3,000 bucks? And I concluded that it would require an, the enormity of a deflationary shock, which would revolution, revolutionize the world of engagement of central banks with markets. Mm -hmm. That interest rates, remember, which were five and a quarter percent in America, would go to zero, the precedent being Japan, and then goodness knows what else they would do. But only if all that came to pass, could we then go on and talk about these elevated price targets for gold? So if you believe the future is one of inflation, you have to buy treasury bond yields, which are a nominal asset and which your brain stops functioning at that point. It's not rational. Mm. You see, again, backing up, when I began my career, this is before the Facebooks and you know the platforms that were, you, it's, you are the dominant, you know, it goes to one, you are the global platform. It doesn't go to three, four, five. Right. Yeah. And, and so back then, the highest return on intellectual capital was to manage a hedge fund, yeah. two and 20. And so I rationalized that kind of with the returns, you would assume the smartest minds amongst the smartest minds on the planet would be hedge fund managers. Somewhat challenged when you meet some of them, but yeah, as a, as a hypothesis, I think solid. Certainly from an IQ perspective, you're talking about the top of the top. Exactly. And so I thought of the banality of trying to outsmart the smartest folk. Right. Why would you do that? So instead, again, I re-engineered and said, well, why is it you can be super smart and you can suck at the world of speculation? Mm -hmm. And it's because of capricious, the capricious nature of life. Things are, we're constantly saying, oh my God, who would have thought that could happen? And that was my franchise. I built, built, that was kind of my thing. So who would have thought that you needed a deflationary event to super spark uh, an inflationary event. And so that's why I had it. And then on top of that, as if anyone who's seen the movie, Greg, this uh, interesting Deutsche Bank, he, we were his, he wasn't welcome in the Deutsche Bank office. And he, and he camped out at my office. And like the film de depicts, I met him, and you, you, you shake his hand and you're counting your fingers. He just, <laughs> he was, he was just a weird, weird guy. And the first time I hear it, I was like, well over my head. So, and, but Mike is no, you got to hear it again. Like, but he's an ass. I don't know. Don't get and I think on the third instance, I'm like, oh my God. And, and suddenly you're one of maybe 50 people in the world and you recognize that you've been informed that the sun is going to explode and it's the end of our universe and we've probably got, probably got 18 months. This is summer of 08 when you're... No, this them? is uh, spring of 2007. Okay, so you're ahead of it. You're, you're so ahead I'm ahead of, of it. it. But then, because my life is one of collecting anecdotes, right? Uh, my um, custodian bank, what is a custodian bank? A custodian bank uh, ensures that you're not lying, mm. right? That the mark on your hedge fund is the real mark that is right. You know, it's been confirmed and verified independently. And my guys, it was a Japanese bank and they were based in Dublin and they sure. went, you was the blarney, like, well, you, you're, because these instruments were new. Yeah. You know, Wall Street had invented them because it was, we were running out of treasuries to sell to the Chinese. And my guys were like, we don't feel confident that if that is such a substantial part of your portfolio, that we can actually legitimize market making in your fund yeah so we have to insist that you sell i was like get out of here you know it's like charlie chocolate uh, charlie uh, wonka i've i've eaten so many chocolate bars and i found the golden ticket i'm going to get to the factory mm -hmm. and you're telling me no or you know elon musk has built this this thing to mars and i'm going to be one of the few people that escapes the, the destruction i mean 
Mars would be too. I would really have solace if the sun was exploding, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> outside the universe, you know. And you're saying no, get to the get to the, go and reinvent yourself again, mm -hmm. which is what I had to do. So furiously, and we worked out another solution. But that solution was was too smart, and the drawback was it was deferred gratitude. I mean, I want gratitude. I want loving now. I'm, I'm not willing to wait. <laughs> and I had to wait to seconds to midnight yeah. before it unveiled itself to me. And, it, and it, it took me up. So the net of it is that late, mid to late 2008, you're making a whole bunch of money while the rest of the world... No. Gets... No, 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 no. I heard no, that no. wrong? No, no. The making money is in those circumstances yeah. is the most you never want to be that you honestly the like i say the returns almost don't justify it so i made a huge pop when bear stearns disappeared right at the end of february i was up 25 percent, and i should have taken those profits but i was like damn that i ain't finished right and those 25 percent profits then became i don't know 15 20 percent losses oh okay okay uh, because the the politicians Everyone, again, the world's going to blow up. They don't want anyone to know this. Right. Subterfuge. And I was subject to that subterfuge. And I, yeah, so I, I was, I was planning to be a, I don't know, I was, I was planning to be a hotelier in the same bars yeah. by yeah. the end of 2008. And, and like I said, I had a client fire me. Um, two weeks before the event, they said to me, and by then my book had recovered. I was only down 3%. And again, my anecdotes, I'm in, an Italian restaurant by the park in New York and, and they've flown me over and they're like, we got someone. I'm putting on Italian accent. It was a restaurant. Actually, they were Italian. They were Italian millionaires. And they're like, we got some. He's down 30%. He gets these markets. You. I mean, me, I'm down three. Mm. I'm thinking that, that that sounds better than 30. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, you don't get these markets. We want our money back. I stood up and I was like, you know, this pastor's on you, you <laughs> morons, right? And I tell you, there's a very chic uh, Italian restaurant in St. Bars. It's everyone's favorite. I can't stand the place because I'm still, I still have you the have template of that, from that, of that evening. And I was like, you know, give me a month and I'm giving you a damn rotten Italian money back, you morons. And of course, because I knew I was sitting, I could feel the vibe. Yeah, you know, this thing was going to blow. And within three weeks, boom, and give them that money. So you've made a change in your life. You're not a hedge fund guy anymore. What are you now? That's a great question. I'm still ambivalently, ambivalently detached. I'm desperate to be loved. What am I? So I. We uh, all are. Why would I have a podcast if I weren't desperate? Well, to be indeed, loved? indeed. So I have a podcast. Yeah, you do. Uh, Why is it called Acid Capitalist? Uh, uh, capitalism. Uh, capitalist. Um, two things. Um, I, I discovered this amazing character, Ronnie Lang, mm -hmm. from Glasgow, from. Where, where I come from. I, I was never aware of him. He was a world-renowned psychologist and he was huge in the 1960s, hung out with Jim Morrison, oh, wow. and he was kind of the intellectual edge of you know, the counter-revolution. Yeah, yeah. And the thing was, like when he, he spoke at all the major university campuses, and half the audience thought he was absolutely out on drugs, mm -hmm. and the other half thought he was a genius. Mm -hmm. And if you ever have the misfortune of, of hearing me on stage, I get the same reaction. Yeah. And so that, and he called himself the acid, acid and Marxist. Mm -hmm. I ain't no Marxist. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where that, partly that comes from. And then, you know, when you look at me, I don't look like a finance kind of guy, right? And how much of that is by design? Oh, it, I, I, well, you know, um, 
after 2008, I, you know, Paul Tudor Jones made 20%, uh, 50% that famously in October 87, mm-hmm. uh, the worst month ever until October 2008. And I made 50% that month. Mm-hmm. He was elevated into the pantheon of greatness. Yeah. And I had a bank run. People were like, okay, I can't believe that idiot made my mind. Let's get out. Yeah. Okay. And so I was persuaded to start wearing suits and to, to tone down my mm. natural self. Mm-hmm. And, and sure enough, a billion dollars came in as I had this lobotomy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Dickensian was the greatest times. It was the worst time. Worst time. I was in, I, I ended, I spent a year on antidepressants. Mm. And the worst antidepressants, antidepressants um, prescribed by a general practitioner and not like a specialist psychiatrist. Mm. You know, people, if you're listening to this, do not take brain pills from your general practitioner, your family doctor. It has to be specialist. Uh, but that's where I was. Um, to, to get the monetary ad- adulation, I had, you know, the, 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 the three, the four musketeers, all those tales. Mm. And there's the tale of the man in the mask, you know, the, 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 the the king's been a little bit indulgent with the chambermaid and there's another child and his identity has to remain hidden. Yeah. He's in the mask and he's in the cellar. Well, I was managing a billion and a half dollars and I was the I was I was in the cellar with a mask. Yeah. And and I whipped it off. So to your point, this is the real me. Yeah. This is the real me. How is what you're doing in St. Bart's an expression of who you are? Well, you know, I I find I cannot explain it precisely because I try my damnedest to do anything but conceive of the macro landscape. I don't have a bloom, God forbid I have a Bloomberg terminal. Right. Uh, any uh, news feeds or whatever are free. You know, I am Scottish, you know, deep pocket, <laughs> short arms, never quite get there. Um, I, you know, I do yoga, I meditate, I, I, I try and surf. I'm the worst surfer ever, but I, you know, I throw my, I'm stuck at 3,463 attempts and I've got to get to 10,000 before I get that mental elasticity. I'm working on it, but give me another five years. And yeah, these voices, I don't know if, it, if it's something in the same boss Wi-Fi, but mm-hmm. you know, I, I have this compulsion to talk and I feel like I can take on some of the, the smartest minds. I just, it, it's within me. And so rather than fighting it now, I'm like, you know, I've, I've found, you know, I've, like, like you perhaps, I, I found this, uh, this, this platform to, to be myself mm-hmm. and, and you know, we'll see. What do you want people who hear you talk or listen to your podcast or even your children? What do you want them to know that you've learned? What do you want to share with the world? Um, for the children, um, I know I stayed in St. Bars, but really, I, I love, <laughs> I love my children. <laughs> uh, for the rest of the world, um, we've, we're, we've created this Tinder volatility box, which is consuming ourselves, our, our, our society. Um, we are seeing events that on statistical models you would attribute as one in 100 year events, except we're like, in the, we're incurring three of these events every decade. We as a society. As a society. And no, explain some you know, from those. pandemic, you know, the, the NASDAQ um, crash at the beginning of the century, you know, you, you, there was an 80% drawdown mm-hmm. in techno- technology and telecom stocks. The German stock market fell 80%. I mean, that is, that stuff's not meant to happen very often. And it was preceded by this collapse in Indonesia and Thailand, which again is not meant to happen very often. And then you had the housing collapse, which had never happened. Again, there was the housing collapse was a was the conceit of a well-formed argument mm-hmm. that uh, 
you'd never seen a nationwide unified house price dump. And therefore, by uh, diversifying a portfolio of mortgages, it was safer than treasury bonds. Mm. True until it's not true. And that's the conceit. And, and the pandemic. Okay. Um, and so these, and you know, the pandemic, you're confined at home. Things are happening. And you, you think, you become, people have become curious. Like, I really have to understand this. And, and the problem is my profession is the guard dog. I'm a guard, I'm a guard dog of capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, like, wind me up the wrong way. And I don't care how powerful you are. Me and my friends will take you down, you know. Um, but instead, the engagement is with gray men in suits who represent the status quo, who are getting richer and richer with profound wrongness of today. And so people turn away, they come and they need to understand and they're deflected by this grotesque. Comedians change the world. And so my mission is we've got to get my brand of asset capitalism onto not my show and and discussions with other practitioners in the world of finance. I need to be on like here, this is wonderful, Joe Rogan, et cetera. And, and, and speaking the truth it, and far away from this codified nonsense. Yeah. So that's my ambition, to speak to comedians. Yeah, that's great. Uh, we've got to work on getting you on Rogan. That would be fantastic. Three hours of this would be awesome. But we are near the end of our time. Yeah, indeed. So uh, let's summarize again. The name of your podcast is Acid Capitalist. I have no idea. They, they, it's maybe my name, Hugh Hendry. <laughs> uh, it's maybe Acid, the Acid Capitalist. You know, I'm all, I do know that I, my tribe and I, we were found, uh, were found on Twitter with, I can't, I don't know, like uh, Hugh underscore Hendry, Hendry underscore Hugh. You, I should know this stuff. You've got a website though, HughHendry.com. Is yeah. That correct? Okay. Yeah. Hugh, H-U-G-H. We'll put links to these in the show, show notes. Hendry, H-E-N-D-R-Y. But you know, my, uh, the, the, the most fun I have is on Instagram. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> I just, because it's silly, Hugh Hendry official. Uh-huh. And those, those evil people will not give me what do you call it? The, the accreditation? Or oh, the um, uh, ver- validation. Verification. Yeah, validation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm, blue check. I'm always getting, you know, taken down by scuzzy crypto fakes. And, yeah. you know, people are like, hey, it's, it's me. I mean, I am the fake Bono. I am not fake crypto, right? <laughs> and so I will never DM you saying, hey, how's that trade? Do you want to talk about it? You know, right. let's do, you know. But anyway, so Hugh Hendry official. You should definitely check it out. Hugh's got so many great ideas and some wonderful videos and pictures from St. Bart's that'll make you jealous of everything he's done. Hugh, man, it's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Hey, everybody. If you like what we're up to here at Crazy Money, do us and yourself a favor by following the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribing to our YouTube channel. Also, click the link in the show notes to subscribe to my new Substack, where you'll get bi-weekly thoughts on the role of money in our world and in our lives directly to your email inbox. Thanks for sticking around. We'll see you next week.